la yawmiddin. All praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on his last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. The topic of today's khutbah was the significance of the birth of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We know from the Quran that Prophet Abraham had prayed and had asked Allah to bless Mecca, bless the people, and this is because he himself had been placed in a particular test wherein he had been commanded by God to take his wife Hagar and his young son Ishmael and to leave them in this land on their own in a situation which appeared to be something of abandonment. Here he had been commanded by Allah to take his wife and child and abandon them in the middle of nowhere, the desert. But Allah blessed that circumstance and made Mecca a land which became a center in Arabia for commerce and Allah also blessed that land by having Prophet Abraham build there the first house of worship dedicated to the worship of the one God and this was built before the building of Masjid al-Aqsa. This was built and preserved as no other structure of worship of the Prophet had been preserved. Because we know today of nothing of the structures of the buildings which were set up by the Prophets of God of the past. This is the only one which has been preserved like this with the exception, of course, of the masjid in Medina of the last Prophet Muhammad but that structure the first house of worship was preserved even though in time the people of the area had fallen into idolatry and had made the Kaaba and Mecca the center of idol worship for Arabia Allah blessed that land and that center based on the prayer of Prophet Abraham by raising again in that land the last of the Prophets of Allah who would purify that house of worship, the first house of worship built by the Prophets of Allah to dedicated solely to the worship of 
the one God. The prophet came also based on prophecy which had been given by Prophet Moses, which even to this day is recorded in the Torah, in spite of the distortions which have crept over the Torah, you still find in Deuteronomy Allah's statement that He would raise up among the brethren, among the brethren of Prophet Moses. He would raise up a prophet like unto Moses, who would speak what he heard from God, and who would establish himself as Prophet Moses established himself in the land. That is, he would establish the rule of God. He would live a complete life, marrying, having children, etc., as Prophet Moses did. And the only one from among the brethren who came was Prophet Muhammad And we also have in the distorted gospels that, that are according to the various writers references made by Prophet Jesus or attributed to Prophet Jesus where he spoke of the one who would come after him translated as the spirit of truth and in different other translations also we have in the apocryphal gospel of Barnabas where his name is mentioned specifically the prophecy of his coming was given by prophet Jesus and the people who came after who were true and sincere followers they knew of his coming this is why when we read in the biography of the Prophet Muhammad where in his youth he traveled with his uncle Abu Talib to Syria on the way they met a monk a monk who was familiar with the scripture and who was able to identify the Prophet Muhammad as the one to come who had been foretold in the scriptures So his coming was prayed for by Prophet Abraham, prophesied by Prophet Moses, and further prophesied by Prophet Isa, or Prophet Jesus, alayhim salam May Allah's peace and blessings be on all of them. And he came at a time when the world had fallen into the depths of darkness. towards the end of the 6th century the beginning of the 7th century this was a time when Christianity had sunken into the depths of idolatry Trinitarian concepts of God and practices which were the furthest that they could reach from the teachings of Prophet Jesus. And other countries, places like Persia, where people worshipped 
a dual God, a God of light and a God of darkness. Ahura Mazda and Angra Manu, which was a distortion from the teachings which had been brought to them. And India was as it was in terms of idolatry, not knowing virtually who God was. And similarly in Africa and Egypt, Sudan, North Africa, we find the people in the depth of idolatry. Where mankind was turned into servants and slaves to produce the largest, the hugest monuments to idolatry, to the worship of Satan. Because when we talk about idolatry, what we're talking about ultimately is the worship of Satan. Because anything that we worship besides Allah is satanic. So this was the state of the world. And as I mentioned, in Mecca itself, the Kaaba was surrounded by over 360 idols. Idols of the various tribes of Arabia, idols which they brought from neighboring countries. They were in a state where Mecca had become the center of idolatry for the tribes of Arabia. People would make pilgrimage there for the worship of their idols. So Prophet Muhammad was raised here. His birth is the beginning. But the significance of Prophet Muhammad was in the message. In the message that he brought from God. Which began when he had reached the 40th year of his life and continued till his death 23 years later. This is the greatest significance of Prophet Muhammad This is why you find in the Quran that Allah does not speak of the birth of the Prophet. But He speaks of raising up amongst the people a messenger. That is the conveyance of the message to him and his conveyance of that message to the people. This is what you find throughout the Quran. Allah reminding the people, informing them that he had sent this prophet to them. Emphasizing the message. Not the time of the birth, nor the time of his death. Of course he had to be born. And of course he had to die. But this is not what was emphasized. It was the message. So the significance of Prophet Muhammad lies in the message which he brought. Which if we reflect on our attitudes towards those who help us. A person, you are in a very difficult situation on your job. Somebody comes along and he helps you out. Then you feel committed to that person. You love that person. 
You do anything for that person. You're sick, you're dying. A doctor comes, or a person skilled in medicine comes, and he cures you. You are forever indebted to that person. This is how you feel over the material things in this life. Then how should we feel about one who saved us from hell? Saved us in a sense which is far greater than saving our physical being, our economic being. We should naturally feel committed love we should feel a total willingness to do for this individual whatever we can from what he has requested of us because he described himself in a metaphor as being like one who in the night sets a fire and the insects of the night when they see the fire they all head for the fire they are attracted to the fire and they fly into the fire and they die but this one who sets the fire he tries to keep these insects back he tries to stop them from flying into the fire this is how he described himself but the, the insects are insisting even though he's fighting trying to keep them away they are still flying around and trying to get into the fire This is the example of himself. He came trying to stop us, show us the way away from the fire. But the masses of mankind want the fire. In ignorance. But this is the role that he played. He taught us the Qur'an. He gave us, conveyed to us the final revelation of Allah. And He also taught us wisdom. The understanding and application of the Qur'an. Through His lifestyle. What we call the Sunnah. Wherein He demonstrated for us how that Qur'an was to be understood and how it was to be applied. He cured us of spiritual sicknesses, of shirk, the spiritual sickness which was destroying mankind. Those peoples that we spoke of, of Persia and of India and of Africa, etc., so many of them were saved. With the coming of Islam, Islam liberated them from the servitude of shirk and the worship of their rulers to the freedom to submit oneself to the one true ruler, Allah. The only one who deserves servitude. He cured us of social sicknesses like jealousy, unfair competition in the business field, 
unfair competition even in the fields of marriage you know your brother has proposed for you to go and propose when your brother has proposed already to the same person this is prohibited in Islam he cured us through his teachings from so many social ills that if we are honest we cannot but feel indebted to him feel that we owe him something but of course the only thing that he has asked for, from us is to worship Allah to submit our wills to Allah and to pray for him not to pray to him but to pray for him and Allah has himself confirmed for us that whenever we pray for the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu that we are rewarded the, the, the reward for that prayer is multiplied for ourselves we benefit for making prayer for the Prophet Muhammad he benefits and we benefit we benefit even more so we are the ones in need of making prayer for the Prophet Muhammad to remind ourselves of our duty to follow his commandments to follow his way and Allah has emphasized his significance by placing his name in the adhan, in the call to prayer so that we hear it five times a day and in the iqama another five times a day his name is again mentioned reminding us of his role and his importance however unfortunately we have a phenomenon which has spread over the Muslim world from somewhere around the 11th or 12th century wherein the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad took on more importance than the Prophet's message itself so people began to celebrate his birthday in imitation of the ways of the Christians the Christians who would celebrate the birthday of the Prophet Isa of course they don't call him Prophet Isa they call him Allah God God the Son some Muslims began to celebrate his birthday Prophet Muhammad's birthday and it is likely that the idea for this came from satanic sources from Satan from the helpers and the friends of Satan that they would introduce this idea to the people in a fashion which would seem very attractive isn't Prophet Muhammad greater than Prophet Isa is he not is he not the last of the prophets the greatest of the prophets sure we all agree well then if people would celebrate the birthday of Prophet Isa we should be celebrating even more the birthday of Prophet Muhammad 
very attractive sounding very enticing and you see this is the way that the satanic forces Satan comes to us he doesn't come to us with something which is obviously evil and obviously wrong because we'll recognize it and say no this is wrong he will come to us with something that we must agree with something which is in its essence true and worthy of note as I said the first statement was isn't Prophet Muhammad the greatest of the prophets he's the last and the greatest yes we all agree but now comes the trick well if Prophet Isa's birthday is celebrated the Christians can spend all this time and effort to celebrate somebody who is lesser than our prophet then shouldn't we outdo them shouldn't we do better than what they're doing and of course the ignorant masses will say yes yes sure yes we should and so the practice began it began in Egypt as far back as been recorded in, in, in the time of the Fatimids this was, a, this was a, a rule of Shiites deviants who had deviated from mainstream Islam who had elevated some of the descendants of Prophet Muhammad to a status which was similar to Allah giving the qualities of Allah to men these individuals began the celebration of the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad on a national scale and from there it spread till now you find in the Muslim world every country in every single country in the Muslim world with without exception the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad is celebrated perhaps this is one of the only countries in the world where it is not celebrated with official sanction it is not celebrated you know by a government decree like a day you know in Rabi al-Awwal this is, this, is um, this is the month in which it is claimed that the Prophet Muhammad was born and a particular date has been set uh, this has not been declared an official holiday but you have people here who will make the celebration privately because officially the scholars of the country are opposed to it and they have spoken about it so many people are aware of it so the masses of people do not get involved but you have some individuals who will do it anyway so they carry these, they have their celebrations, but they're done privately in homes or whatever. But in the rest of the world, you will find that this becomes a national holiday, Yawmun Nabi. You know, where people are freed of work, it's just like, you know, like Eid. And they will celebrate the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad. But, as I said, what has happened here? is that the message which the Prophet Muhammad brought was neglected and people began a personality cult you see where the personality the individual 
became more important than the message which he brought. Which is the opposite of what the Quran taught. That the message was more important than the individual. Muhammad was only a vehicle. We respect him. We pray for him. We love him because Allah chose him. Not because of him himself. He was a man like other men. But what makes him worthy of our love and confidence and trust is the message that he brought, the fact that Allah chose him to carry that message to us. But unfortunately, as I said, people got caught up in the personality, the individual, the man. So his birthday becomes important. The man, when he was born, the day on which he was born. And this is something which the Prophet Muhammad warned us about. He warned us saying that you should not be excessive in your praise of me in the way that, you, that the others, the Christians did to Prophet Jesus. Don't do it. Don't make the place of my burial a place of gathering and celebration and worship as the peoples of the past did to the prophets of the past. And he told them, after saying, do not praise me beyond my worth as they have done to Prophet Jesus, said, I am merely, just call me Abdullah, a slave of Allah, or a suit, and a messenger of Allah. That's what the Prophet asked of the people. And he in his personal life emphasized practically to the people that he was a man like them. When people came to seek him out, when he sat amongst his companions, no one could identify him. Those who didn't know him couldn't identify him. Until somebody pointed out, oh there he is over there. He was indistinguishable from his companions. He sewed his own clothes, mended his own shoes. He lived a simple and basic life. Because what was important was not the man. It was the message that he brought. And this is why he told us that whoever does a deed which has not been sanctioned by me, by Islam, that deed will be rejected, will be thrown back at him. It will be of no benefit. And whoever brings something new in the religion, this which is brought anew will be a source of misguidance. Every new thing will be a source of misguidance. And ultimately, these new inventions, these new changes in the religion will lead a person to hell. Because behind these 
innovations are the satanic forces. As I said, they appear appealing to us initially, but eventually they take us out of the religion. This was the teaching. The teaching was prohibiting the introduction of any new practices in the religion. The Prophet Muhammad did not celebrate his birthday. His companions did not celebrate his birthday. The students of his companions did not celebrate his birthday. Nor did they, their students celebrate his birthday. And the Prophet Muhammad said, the best of generations is my generation. Then the generation which comes after them. Then the generation which comes after them. So if the best three generations of mankind did not celebrate the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad can that celebration be good? No. It cannot be. It is in contradiction to the message. And because of it, you find when you go to these celebrations, in most parts of the world, I'm not saying in every case, but in most parts of the world, when you find these celebrations and the people get together, you'll find the mixing of the men and women. They may even be taking intoxicants. Uh, they will be singing songs which elevate Prophet Muhammad to the status of Allah. They will give him qualities of Allah omniscience and powers and etc. which only belong to Allah. You'll find this in many of the famous what they call Qasidas which are sung. When you go and look at the meanings you'll find they're shirk. They're, they're giving to the Prophet Muhammad attributes which belong only to Allah which is shirk. But this is what you find. And there will be music music which the Prophet you know had described as being uh, deviant as being uh, the work of Satan is being a part of of uh, distraction of people from the worship of Allah and what you will find is that these people many of the people who are deeply involved in these practices these are people who are neglecting their compulsory duties you'll find a man he doesn't pray he doesn't fast but he's going to celebrate the birthday of the Prophet and if you speak against the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad you know, you are an apostate, he's ready to kill you. But he doesn't pray and he doesn't fast, doesn't give zakat. Huge amounts of money are wasted in these celebrations. Paying people who will come and make these songs and music and all these things. These people are paying all this money and they don't even pay their regular zakat. And when it comes to inheritance, they don't divide it up properly. They divide it up according to their own whims and wishes. They're not following the principles of Islam but when it comes to the celebration of the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad you know it becomes something which they give their everything so it is a deviation it is something which uh, deludes people into believing that they are pleasing Allah this is the shortcut it's the people who are not prepared to do what is required of them seek the shortcut you see by attending these celebrations by showing your love for Prophet Muhammad you see this love is so great that this is going to carry you to paradise 
You don't have to pray, fast, any of the other things. But just this love. You see, it becomes like Christianity. Isn't it? Christianity which teaches everything is love. You know? You love Jesus. That's it. As long as you accept Jesus, you know, you love Him with all your heart, then that's it. doesn't matter what you do after that. You're going to paradise. You're amongst the, the blessed. So this is what has happened. They have modified the religion into Christianity. So though they're calling themselves Muslims, they've become Christians. In their practice. And this love is not accepted in any way, shape or form. True, Prophet Muhammad had said that none of you has truly believed until I become more beloved to him than his wife, his children, his parents, and the things of this world, and even himself. And when he said this, Omar, the second caliph, had said, O Messenger of Allah, truly you are more beloved to me than my wife and children and all the things of this world, except myself. And the Prophet Muhammad told him, well, you better check yourself. So he reflected some more and then he said, no, no, even myself. And he said, now you have really believed, Omar. This is true. This is there for us. But how do we show our love for Prophet Muhammad Is it by disobeying his commandments? No. If somebody tells you, listen, I love you, brother. And when you ask him to do something, he says, no, I can't do it. I, no, no. I'm too busy, I'm so. And every time you ask him, he says, no, 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 I can't, I'm too busy, I have to do this. To... But I love you, I love you. What is the meaning of this love? It's worth. You know, love which is real is going to drive you to serve the one who you love. And this is why we are warned actually, and Allah tells us in the Quran, to beware of your wives and your children. Because they can become an enemy to you. Because of your love for them, you may disobey Allah. So you have to be careful to keep your love in check. That it does not reach the stage where you will disobey Allah to please them. Because when you do that, you have entered into the right. Then we must follow Allah's the Prophet. creation becomes greater than your love for the Creator. Then that becomes hell for you. That's your path to hell. And this is why we are warned against it. Because true love will cause a person to want to serve and to do things to obey the one that he loves. And that full sense of love is deserving only to Allah and His Messenger. And the reason why we love the Messenger in this fashion, in this fashion and to understand the love of the Messenger, we have to understand the love of Allah. And when Allah says, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهِ فَاتَّبِعُونِي يُحْبِبْكُمُ اللَّهِ If it is, say, if it is that you love Allah, then follow me, follow the Prophet of Allah. And Allah will love you. Because when we love, we seek from the one who we love, love back. We want the love to come back. You know, I mean, you love somebody, you want that person to love you also. So if we want Allah to love us in our expression of our love, then we must follow 
the Prophet. And when we follow the Prophet, in fact, we are following Allah. Because Allah says, Whoever obeys the Messenger has obeyed Allah. So our expression of love of Allah by following the Messenger is obedience to Allah. So herein lies the essence of the love of the Messenger. Obedience to Him. Doing what He has commanded us and avoiding what He has prohibited us from. Because we know that whatever He has conveyed to us is from Allah. He didn't speak of Himself. This is Allah describing the Prophet as not speaking from His own desires. But what He related to you is revelation. So His actions and His statements were it's a secondary form of revelation from Allah demonstrating to us this is why we are obliged to obey Him obey the Quran and obey Him all the time Allah is telling us in the Quran obey Allah and obey the Messenger obey Allah and obey His Messenger because the two are inseparable they are inseparable so our expression of love what is required of us is to follow the Prophet Muhammad and this is our declaration of faith isn't it? when we say Ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah after saying Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah we bear witness that there is no God but Allah nothing worthy of worship but Allah Allah made us add to that and we bear witness that Muhammad was the messenger of Allah the one who conveyed to us the message of Allah. Meaning what? Meaning that He is the one individual in our life who we are obliged to follow blindly. Whatever He has told us, we follow. Because He was the messenger of Allah. And if we really believe that the Prophet Muhammad was the messenger of Allah then we would have no reluctance in obeying his commandments and avoiding the things which he has prohibited so when we find within ourselves a reluctance to do or to avoid what we are expressing here is a an aspect of our weakness of faith a portion of disbelief this is what it is in fact if it remains at that level and then we seek to do other righteous things to cover it okay fine but if it grows it can become full disbelief reach a state where you know a week ago one individual in the eastern province was executed for cursing Allah and his messenger saying that Islam was a lie falsehood made up the Quran was written by the Prophet it was just stories he made up so he was executed this is a person who Satan had finished taken him away
And that individual, his disbelief may have started in a small stage. This is why, although we know that sins are on different levels, and Allah does command us to fear Him to the degree that we are able. We try to fear Him to the degree that we are able. However, we should not neglect the fact that in disobedience, small areas of disobedience, when they become widespread in our practice, this can lead to major disobedience. You know, we all always have to be in a struggle, an effort to try to stop, to keep back these forces which are destroying our faith. We have to, it's a constant struggle. So, it is very important for us to remember the Prophet Muhammad not on one specific day in the year, but on every day, as Allah has commanded us through the Adhan and the Iqamah, through the Tashahud that we make, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad we have been commanded to remember him throughout our daily lives and that's how we should live it it should be a constant reflecting on the Prophet Muhammad what he has commanded us to do and to try to apply that in our day to day lives in the end of the khutbah the Imam had mentioned that in the media you know there is an attempt even here where the official position is against uh, the celebration these innovative and prohibited celebrations there is an attempt in the media to try to to make the celebration of the Prophet birthday appealing so you will find in some of the newspapers you know, I saw one paper, it had one whole page of praise to the Prophet Muhammad Somebody wrote a poem which filled a whole page of praises to the Prophet Muhammad But, as he pointed out, people fall into this trap either due to ignorance or because they're seeking some worldly benefit some worldly gain or because they have chosen deliberately the path of evil so those of us who have in the past fallen into this trap should reflect which of these categories are we if we are in a category of ignorance then we need to understand Islam properly and this is the purpose of the khutbah to educate to make you aware of what is required of us as Muslims in terms of our relationship to the Prophet Muhammad how it is that we express our love for him to understand that, to be educated 
to that and we can save ourselves and if we are involved in these things out of seeking worldly gain because the boss in our company says I'm having a celebration over my house today and if you don't come then you will not be amongst those who are liked by the boss and this might mean you might lose your job in the future etc so out of your fear of displeasing your boss you choose to displease Allah those of us who may be in that category need to reflect on where we're headed because for sure it's hell if we don't correct ourselves and get out of that situation and for those who insist because they have in fact disbelieved they have rejected faith for them of course this has no because they have in fact disbelieved they have rejected faith for them of course this has no meaning as Allah says you know he has put a veil over their eyes and has sealed their ears and their hearts so telling them is like not telling them it's all the same so inshallah I would hope that this topic is one which would cause us to reflect not only on the issues, the direct issues concerning the celebration of the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu but the issue in general of innovation in religion that we be wary especially many of us here who in fact are recent converts to Islam where we may find ourselves in going back to our host, our own countries, our home countries we may find the people practicing many different things that we have a duty to ourselves not to just fall into the practices of the people but to try to determine the basis of these practices if they are not found in the teachings of the Quran or the message of the Sunnah the practice of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad then we have to reject these practices we have to oppose these practices that opposition of course should be done wisely you know it's not just you know calling people mushriks or you know disbelievers or whatever because they're doing these things but we try to educate the people as we have been educated to understand Islam from its foundation as we have striven to understand it and in that way we can convey the message the message of revival of the return to the pure Islam which was brought by Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 1400 years ago this blessing which Allah gave through the Prophet to mankind we may take benefit from it and pass it on to others inshallah I'll stop here if anybody has any uh, comments that they'd like to make or additions of any points from the khutbah itself which I missed or any questions that they'd like to raise 
on the issue, on the topic of celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, then uh, they may do so now. But just before that, I should just add that if the celebration of the Prophet's birthday is prohibited in Islam, then the celebration of our own birthdays and the celebration of our children's birthdays goes without saying. Right? Because if we are to celebrate birthdays, if we are prohibited to celebrate that of the Prophet Muhammad then naturally our own celebration of our own birthdays and those of our children must be prohibited even more so. Of course one may say, well, the celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, this is a religious act. When a person does so, he does so believing that this is pleasing to Allah. So in doing this, this becomes a form of innovation in the religion. Because we cannot please Allah with something which the Prophet Muhammad didn't teach us. The only things which are pleasing to Allah are the things which the Prophet taught us to do. Because he did say, you know, that مَا تَرَكْتُ شَيْءًا يُقَرِّبُكُمْ إِلَى اللَّهِ إِلَّا وَأَمَرْتُكُمْ بِهِ I did not leave anything which would bring you closer to Allah, which is pleasing to Allah, which would bring you closer to Him, except I told you to do it. So the person may argue, well no, when I celebrate my birthday, or the birthday of my children, I do not believe that this is a form of coming closer to Allah. So this is just a, you know, we could say a, a cultural practice. You know? So this shouldn't really be included along with celebration of the Prophet's birthday. True. That is true. That it may not be in the same category because of one's intent. However, if one looks at the origin of the celebration of the birthday, go back and open an encyclopedia and look under the heading of birthday and see where the practices of celebration of birthday comes from. You will see that it returns to pagan practices. Idol worshippers of the past put certain special significances to the birth, the time of birth of a person, which is expressed also in the zodiacal signs and the, you know, the, uh, what do you call, um, the signs of the zodiac, which we call the astrology, etc. These, these are the pagan concepts and thoughts which are at the root of the celebration of one's birthday. So in doing so, one in fact imitates pagan practices of other cultures. And the Prophet Muhammad had said that whoever imitates the ways of a people are from those people, are amongst them, are considered one of them, like them. And we as Muslims are enjoined to avoid practices, especially those which have pagan origins to them. And when you look at the effects of the celebration of one's birthday, the harmful effects that can come into families, you can see naturally why this also is not liked Islamically. Because when your child comes home to you and says, so and so, the neighbor invited us to his birthday party, then you must now buy a present. 
Because when you're invited to a birthday party, you're expected to bring a present. The birthday party is a means of gathering presents for the child. So now you, your economic situation may not allow you to be able to buy a present or a present which would be on the standard of that particular family. So your child now is put in a position of embarrassment because all you can buy is a little nothing kind of present and he feels shy to come and give a little nothing when everybody else is giving big presents. So he feels bad, he feels bad towards you because, because he can't understand you don't have enough money. You know, it's just my father is not a good father, he doesn't do this one. And then, when his birthday comes around and you can't afford to buy him what he wants, he feels again bad feelings towards you. And if you forget your wife's birthday because you're busy working and so on, so, she is upset, why, why you didn't remember my birthday? You know, you see all the negative things that comes out of his birthday, you, then it's not surprising why Islam is opposed to it. Because true, though some people may benefit, the harm in the end becomes greater. So I just wanted to add that, you know, in case, uh, because we're on the topic of birthdays, it's good to just link it all up. Inshallah, uh, now if you, any of you have any questions, uh, could, could you go down and see if there are any questions from the sisters, please? Uh, any questions anybody would like to raise? Okay, brother. How does the Muslim pray for the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Well, we have been commanded to say after the mention of his name, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that is, you know, may Allah's peace and blessings be on him where we're asking Allah to bless him. This is one of the ways. And he said, Sallu alayya haythuma kuntum. You know, wherever you are, you do so. And whoever does so, Allah will reward him ten times. That. Man sallu alayya salatan wahida sallallahu alayhi biha ashara. Allah also prays for that or blesses that person who does that ten times. So we benefit while praying for the Prophet Muhammad Also, when the uh, Adhan is given, there is dua that we make afterwards in which we ask Allah for Al-Wasila for the Prophet Muhammad which is, the Prophet explained, was the highest level in paradise, which should only be given to one individual and he wishes that he would be that individual now some people mistakenly think that this concept or term of wasila means intercession which is wrong because the Prophet Muhammad explained himself when the companions asked him what is the wasila he explained this is in Sahih Muslim he explained that it is this particular place in paradise the highest point then he said sallu alayya you know wherever you are this is how we pray for him. Of course, some people may go further and uh, recite the Quran, for example, and ask Allah to give the blessings of the recitation of the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad. These practices now become questionable. When we recite the Quran, 
we need the blessings ourselves. You know, he has, he has told us how to bless him, to pray for him. Well, let's use the ways that he told us. And the other things we can do, we should try to do as much as we can for ourselves. Alaikum salam rahmatullah. Okay, uh, this, uh, the question that our brother was asking was that there are, re- there are references in the Quran and in the Sunnah and it's commonly stated where the Kaaba is referred to as Baytullah the house of Allah or the house of God now as our brother expressed that this has some kind of overtones you know which sort of implies when you say this is the house of, of Khalid you know, it means Khalid lives in this house, right? So when we say this is the house of Allah, I mean, what are we saying here? I mean, just to clarify this point, really. Yes. In Arabic, as it exists in English, you have a construction which is, uh, this is a construction indicating possession of a thing. Sometimes this is used to indicate the possession of something which is your own a part of yourself or something which you own which is not a part of yourself and this is for example when we say my hand this is, this is something my own right this is, that's Bilal's hand you know this means it's part of me so that's Bilal's book that's something which is not a part of himself, right? It's not so this expression of possession can indicate can have a number of different meanings. One that it is a part of something or it is possessed by that thing. And then when you use this term of possession it could be just merely indicating possession or it could be indicating special honor see because when we say the houses on the earth all of them are Allah's houses we could say all of the houses on the earth are Allah's houses in the sense that Allah is the one who gave us the the materials to build it and the knowledge to build it it's His they all belong to Him however He refers to the places of worship as Buyutullah the houses of Allah he out of the houses that we build on the the earth the structures that we build on the earth he has chosen some of them and have given them special honor so this possession is one uh, indicating honor not one indicating that he inhabits or it is his in that more literal sense no it's one of honor as he refers we refer to naqatullah the she-camel of Allah you know this was the one sent as a, as a test to the people of uh, Prophet um, 
Salih, right? Uh, his people, this was a test sent to them, this camel. And, you see, normally when we say Khalid's camel, it means this is, this is the animal that Khalid rides, right? Or he milks it or whatever. But when we say Naqatullah, we don't mean that this is the camel that Allah rides, no. Allah has elevated that camel out of all of the camels because He made it a sign to the people. There was a miraculous quality to it, which separated it out from the other camels. So that's what gave it that status of honor by Allah calling it His. Allah's camel. Allah's house. And then, of course, the Mecca, Kaaba, out of all of the various houses of Allah, this one, he refers most directly to his, Baytullah. Because of all of the houses of worship, it is the most honorable. This is why Allah, you know, through the Prophet Muhammad told us that one prayer there is worth 100,000 prayers. Of. This is due to the honor that Allah has placed on this being the first house of worship built for the worship of Allah. So, this is how we conceive it. And similarly, when Allah refers to His Spirit, it's very important to keep this in mind too. Because some people have mistakenly thought when Allah refers to His Spirit in the Quran that Allah has a Spirit. And especially those of us coming from Christian backgrounds where we think of Allah as being a Spirit and that Allah is in each and every one of us in our hearts, you know. Then this conveys to us the concept Allah's spirit and then Allah created Adam and blew in him from his spirit that you know each and every one of us has a piece of Allah inside himself this is a mistaken concept no the spirit is created by Allah Allah refers to it as his spirit the human spirit is elevated above the spirits of the rest of the creation it has a special status so he refers to it as his spirit but the Prophet Muhammad clarified for us that on the beginning of the fifth month in the, in the development of the human being, then an angel comes and blows the spirit in that individual. So the angel is the one who placed the spirit in Adam. Not that Allah blew. And when you're saying blow, people think, and of course, once you do that, then you're making Allah like a man. Right? You know, we, we're not allowed to conceive of Allah in the terms of human beings. You see? So we have to understand these statements which Allah uses. Some of them have metaphorical implications. They, they are used to bring a concept closer to us. You know, to, in terms that we can more easily understand. But at the same time, we have to be careful to not fall into such a literary understanding that we make Allah like His creation. Because Allah says very clearly, There is nothing like Him. No one is similar to Him. So Allah is not a spirit, nor does He have a spirit, but He created the spirit, whether human or otherwise. Raise your voice, Mr. Yeah, somebody might ask that with this being of knowledge of mine, I have just a person's 
Satan was in the midst of all this prevalent uh, innovative teaching around the country, all, all over the world. How could I sit out if most of the books of the period and opportunity, you know, all over the world, and you know, deal with this process? How could I sit? How could I make sure that? How can I, you know, especially if I'm adjusting British Islam, how can I? Okay, our brother is asking. For a person who recently embraced Islam, reading various books and materials which are printed in various countries, which may have in them, to different degrees, information which is deviant. It's not to say every book which is written in every country is deviant, but many books may contain many deviant facts. It may not be all deviant, it may just have one point or another point. How do we know? As a new Muslim when reading information, how do we know that this information is authentic, is reliable? How can we judge when we don't have a firm foundation, a solid background in Islamic scholarship to be able to distinguish between truth and falsehood? If you see a book, you read a book in which a person is just telling you ideas after ideas after ideas and he's not quoting from the Quran and not quoting from the statements and practices of the Prophet Muhammad right away you know that is a book that you should not rely on a dangerous book because human ideas human ideas may be correct or they may not be when a man lets his mind go to write whatever comes to his head, you know, it is very easy to deviate many people behind it. Because when we look around the world, those who are deviant, what are they deviated behind? The writings and the teachings which have no basis in revelation. So when we're reading, and let's talk about Islamic books, of course, right? Books where we're seeking knowledge about God, man's relationship to God, how he should live his life, etc. We should seek those books that refer the information back to the foundation of Islam, the Quran and the Sunnah. And preferably, there should be reference, not just a person saying, in the Quran it is said. No. It tells you verse, chapter, so and so. The Prophet said in the noble tradition, no, he said in book, collection, Bukhari, volume, so and so, you know, page, so and so. The, the more you find that, the more you can be uh, confident about the information you're given. Because when the person tells you where you can find it, so in other words, when you read this, you can now go back to these books and check it yourself, read it for yourself, then you can feel more confident. And those people who are on the path of deviation, they will not reference their work in this fashion. You know, for the most part. If they're going to give references, they'll be vague references, so you can't check it yourself. So these are the ways and the means that you may use to ensure that the material that you're getting is sound. One of the means that you may use for yourself being here, for example, and uh, fortunately, Allah has not only blessed this country with wealth, the material wealth, which is what brought many of us here, 
you know, to try to make our lives better, earning some money or whatever. But he has also blessed the country in the sense that the center of Islam, Mecca and Medina, is here. And furthermore, there was over a hundred years ago a revivalist movement led by a scholar from this region by the name of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab who called people back to the practice of Islam in its purity. He was opposed by many. Actually his own father spoke against him. His brother even wrote a book condemning him. But before he died, his brother came back and became one of his supporters. But the point is that he was chased out of his town that he was in. But eventually he found support by one of the emirs of this area. And together they set about spreading the teachings as well as reuniting the country. This movement began, as I said, as a religious movement. And to that degree, it has affected the overall religious direction of the country. So you will find here less innovation in terms of the day-to-day practices of Islam than you will find in most other countries. So, you can to a degree, I mean to a limited degree, I'm not saying you can just open this door wide, but I'm saying to a limited degree. If you find that people are not doing certain things here in terms of practices, like the celebration of the birthday of the Prophet, you know, and certain other celebrations, etc. And you go back and you find people are doing these things, this is a sign for you to question to seek evidence, you know, to a, to a certain degree. As I said, you can't, I'm not opening the door wide open in the sense that there are things which are here. For example, you may find in the banks interest being given and taken. And we cannot say, well, if we go back home, we want to deal in interest. Say, well, we, they do it in Saudi Arabia. You know, it must be all right. This is the land of the prophet and so on, so on, so on. No, no. That's why I said I don't want to open the door wide open, you know, right into everything that they're doing, no. But I said to a limited degree in terms of the day-to-day, you know, uh, practices, celebrations, etc., you will find that this is one of your best examples. So if you find things which seem to be different, then these are one of the signs that you may want to question when you go back. But as I said, the general procedure that we should use is to concentrate on material which indicates the source that it comes as being the Qur'an and the Sunnah showing you where you can research these things yourself for further study and these are the type of materials which you can put your uh, trust in what you don't find fulfilling these you have to be wary about understand that these are opinions of people which may be correct and may not be to uh, 
In reference to praising the Prophet, um, oftentimes we hear praise in reference to Prophet Muhammad and his family. Now, in recent times, present time, there are people who are reported to be members of his family whose character is questionable. Is it correct for us to ask Allah to reward the Prophet's family? Uh, in reference to that, there's a hadith, or there are hadith in Sahih Muslim where there's reference made that we should not consider his family, uh, we, they shouldn't have a special place amongst us as Muslims simply because they are members of his family. Is it proper for us to praise his family or to ask Allah? to reward his family simply because they're members of his family. Well, our question here, I mean, it's a question which has an answer in the question, right? I mean, the question being that we are enjoined, or it is said that we are enjoined to not only praise the Prophet Muhammad but also praise his family. And this is in the Salah itself. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Ali Muhammad. You know, this is, and also on the family of Muhammad And there are people around today, and there have been people in the past, who claim to be from his family, his descendants, who in their practice are deviant, corrupt. So, should we, in fact, praise the family of the Prophet simply because they are his family? And our brother also mentioned that he recalled reading something in the traditions collected by Muslims that the Prophet had said something to that effect. Well, I don't know exactly that to the effect that we should not praise his family because they are his family. I'm not really familiar with that particular reference that he made but the point is that we are commanded in the Salah to ask Allah to bless his family and that's enough clear five times a day and more however what is understood here is the righteous members of his family. You know, as Allah told Noah when his son refused to join him that he is not from your family. Though physically speaking, yes, he was his son. But Allah told him that this man is not from your family. So anyone who is a deviant and corrupt individual is not from the family of the Prophet Muhammad even if he physically happens to be amongst his descendants. So the encouragement and, 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 and commandment to, to ask Allah to bless the Prophet Muhammad and his family, it stands. The righteous of his family. You love those 
who Allah loves. You love those who the Prophet loved. Those who are close to the Prophet Muhammad you should love them too. And he had also said that anyone who hates my descendants, you know, who of his family, and, and, he, and he's talking about really his more immediate family, and those are the righteous of his family, anyone who hates them, his face is nullified, destroyed. Because if you hate those who Allah loves, how can you love Allah? That's why those people who hate the companions of the Prophet Muhammad you know, who call themselves Shiites, for example, who claim that the vast majority of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad became apostates. They left Islam except for about five. Starting with Abu Bakr. Omar, Uthman, these are all people who left Islam. This is what Shiites say. The majority of them say. In other words, and an apostate is one you should hate. They hate those who the Prophet loved. The Prophet married the daughter of Abu Bakr and the daughter of Omar. And he married two of his daughters to Uthman. And you hate them? This is deviation, for sure. Uh, any further questions? Oh, we have some questions there from uh, sisters. Why is it that all the other prophets, such as Moses, Jesus, Abraham, were or are common to both Christianity and Islam. Why is Prophet Muhammad not present in Christianity? Does he have a Christian name? Well, by Christian name meaning a name by which he may be referred to by Christians without realizing that he is in fact the same person. Um, The fact that the reason why the prophets Moses, Jesus and Abraham are common to both Islam and Christianity is because Christianity is a deviation from Islam. What Jesus brought was Islam. What Paul taught was Christianity. So what people are following is not what Jesus brought but what Paul taught. But since his teachings were taken initially from Islam, then this is why you will find a commonality there. The prophets are similar. And the reason why Prophet Muhammad is not recognized as a prophet in Christianity is because it was a deviation from the teachings of Christ. And as such, 
it is not going to guide people to the truth it will hide the truth and lead them instead to falsehood and this is what Christianity in fact is it is a path of falsehood today it is leading people away from the truth so why then such a path should then guide people back to Muhammad no doesn't make sense so it's natural that Christianity should not mention Prophet Muhammad you know or consider him to be a prophet of Allah because what he taught was the truth which contradicts and negates the teachings of Paul and what became known as Christianity however you do find in the distorted gospels as I mentioned in the beginning some references the paraclete which has been taken to mean when Jesus spoke of going and that when he left that one would come after him and that the one who would come after him would not come until he left you know and speaking about this individual uh, Christians have taken that to refer to the Holy Spirit but uh, however when you look at the references it's obvious that it is not the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit existed at the time of Jesus the Holy Spirit was present during the time of Jesus according to the gospel so therefore we really need to look at those references in another light in a light that this is in reference to an individual and then if we do so the descriptions given to that individual known as the paraclete that those descriptions fit only Prophet Muhammad Uh, question is it not right for us to give thanksgiving that we're born into this world why is it that birthday celebrations are being discouraged uh, one as I said one needs to go back and look at the origin of the principle of celebration of birthdays because you will find as I said that it has a pagan origin and when we celebrate the birthdays it is not really one of thanksgiving you as a particular individual may put that intention behind it but that's not the general intention so since it has a pagan origin this is why we reject it and if it were in in fact something good because if we are now to look at it as thanksgiving thanking God now we have turned it into a religious act which we now believe to be pleasing to God giving thanks to God that we were born this becomes a religious act and Prophet Muhammad who brought the final message of Islam he didn't give thanks to God that he was born so what are you saying are you better than the Prophet you've got a better way no obviously giving thanks in this fashion is not an acceptable method question is the Holy Kaaba the center of the earth geographically yeah we hear this uh, people referring to the Kaaba as being the center of the earth but if you think about it you've got a sphere any point on the sphere is its center isn't it you know so it is a ridiculous statement 
It is an attempt on the part of people to try to, you know, give the Kaaba some, you know, almost mystical, uh, you know, qualities. You know, as a matter of fact, I know when I uh, accepted Islam and, you know, some friends of mine told me, you know, that, you know, the Kaaba, you know, the birds don't even fly over the Kaaba. You know, they circle around the Kaaba instead. You know, it's like some, you know, force field that goes up from the Kaaba which prevents them from flying over the Kaaba. But alhamdulillah, I got a chance to come to Mecca and I went there and made Umrah and I saw birds flying over. Not only flying over, but defecating on the Kaaba. You know? And you, you see people, when, when the rain comes, when it rains in Mecca, and it rains on the top of the Kaaba, and it has a trough to, to, lean, to lead the water off, they'll be running there and catching the water from, in, in, from the top of the Kaaba in these bottles, bathing in it, washing, you know, they, they, they'll bring the... the uh, the robe that they plan to, to be buried in, they'll bring it there, wash it in Zamzam water, and if it happens to be raining and the water is coming off the top of the Kaaba, they'll go and wash it in these things. When in fact this water is filled with filth, najata. People are bottling it and taking it back to their homes. <laughs> you know, you know, this is a distortion, a misunderstanding where people have deviated from understanding you know, the practical and the real aspects so, the Kaaba is not the center, any more the center of the earth than Medina or Masjid al-Aqsa or any, your own home is the center of the earth. Okay, inshallah, um, it's now two o'clock, which is our stopping point. So, um, inshallah, if there are any other questions, they can be carried on uh, next week. Uh, just before going, I was asked, last week because we did run out of time to uh, touch briefly on a topic which had been a source of controversy you know in the week that I was absent and um, it is a topic which the week previous I had you know deliberately attempted to to deal with in such a general fashion that it would be without controversy and that was the topic concerning the covering of the face of the woman. And I would just like to re-emphasize, though some brothers uh, tried to push one position over another position in the sitting two weeks ago, that there is sufficient evidence to support both positions with major scholars on both sides so much so that it is not fair to say as was said that if you were an Arab or if you understood Arabic then it would be clear to you that it has to be this way this was a statement which was made or that implication was given and as I said there are major scholars who are Arabs or who understand Arabic as best as it can be understood who do not understand those verses in the light that the brother was expressing. So, I would just like to return us back to the original position which I gave three weeks prior which was that it is on the individual to look at the evidence from both sides and to choose for himself 
the one which appears to be most practical, most reasonable, and apply it. But I could just say, practically speaking, in America, where a woman may accept Islam, may be working to provide for herself and her family, that she may find extreme difficulty to even get a job with her hair covered. For you to tell her that it is compulsory to cover your face and if you do not do so, you are a sinner, is to tell her that she should stay at her home and allow herself and her children to starve. So I know on a practical plane there, as you may all know in the Philippines, on a practical plane, that as much as one may be convinced, one also has to deal with the practicalities of life. And that ultimately, you know, becomes the determining factor in terms of what we do. And if we recognize these practicalities, then it is better that we take a position which will allow a certain amount of leeway for people to be able to live and practice their Islam, you know, on a uh, community and an individual level. And uh, inshallah, with that I would like to close now, you know, asking Allah to accept our gathering as one in which we have sought to please Him one in which we have been reminded about the importance of the Prophet Muhammad to praise him to ask Allah's prayer for him and blessing as a means of reminding ourselves of the importance of following him we ask Allah to give us the strength and the courage to follow the message which he brought as completely as possible in order that we may find our way back to God to paradise in the next life. Amen.